Welcome to Intimacy Architecture with Christiane Bella. This call-in radio show is here to help you discover the power of your intimacy. So join us with your questions for Christiane and her world-renowned guests, authors, speakers, and doctors. Together, they will help you build a life you love. This is a shame-free space where no topic is taboo. Here is your host, Christiane Bella. Greetings. Hello, hello, everyone. Happy Friday. Welcome. I am Christiane Bella, and I'm here to help you build a life you love with intimacy architecture. And tonight, my guest is Dr. Ryan Witherspoon. Dr. Ryan Witherspoon is a psychotherapist who is an active researcher, author, and speaker, helping other therapists to understand more of the uh, sex positive uh, aspect to things, really understanding the diversity and, uh, and relating to their clients in a new way. So we are going to talk about the perks of what therapy can really do for you and how to navigate if your uh, lifestyle choices are maybe outside of that mainstream uh, scope of society. Welcome, Dr. Ryan Witherspoon. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So Ryan and I actually go way back before he was Dr. Witherspoon. <laughs> uh, and you were actually one of the first person uh, people who really uh, set an example of uh, different relationship dynamics. Um, in fact, I actually passed on a technique that you had taught me to clients I had the other day about if you're having a, a trouble with an agreement uh, to take a walk and then you're like going in the same direction. So at least if you're like discussing something you can't quite see you know, each other's point of view on you're moving, you're not sitting like war style in this like right. battle of who's, you know, going to win. <laughs> so yep. I was thinking yep. that today. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> great, awesome. Great tools. Um, so I thought you would appreciate that these, you know, these tools are being passed on and being used. It's something I, I still do. So most talks, I think most difficult talks are better when they're done on a walk out in nature, in my opinion, but we yeah. rarely actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's such the cliche, right? That you're like in an office on a couch somewhere. Um, but yeah, nature is, is just a natural healing space for that. So start a revolution with uh, more outside therapy. <laughs> there is, there's actually a whole nature therapy specialization. <gasps> awesome. People do this. Yeah. It's great. I love it. I love it. That is good to know. Um, well, yeah, let's jump in. So, I mean, relationship when we we think about sex i feel like sex positive is one of those like catchphrases you hear a lot these days mm -hmm. so what does that even mean to you this idea of being uh, more sex positive that's a great question so you know i think a lot of people uh in america and western culture may not really realize just how sex negative or erotophobic mm. our culture really is because in some ways especially here in america we're saturated with sexualized uh, advertising, media, entertainment, um, and yet uh, actual sexuality is still considered in some way, you know, very shameful uh, or potentially shameful, you know, very private. Um, we have a lot of very conflicting moralities and beliefs around it. And sex positivity uh, as, a, as a concept really just refers to considering sexuality as a source of creativity, mm -hmm. diversity, pleasure, connection. And it's distinguished from, I think, the way that a lot of people in our culture mm -hmm. think about sex, including a lot of therapists, mm -hmm. um, which is that, you know, whatever our particular cultural identity, background, family, we all have whatever our internal ideas of mm -hmm. what I'll use air quotes, you know, normal yeah. sexuality is supposed to be. And so most people just intuitively, reflexively, mm -hmm. um, when they're confronted with a sexuality, a sexual expression that is different from what they perceive to be the norm, their judgment of that, their opinion on that thing is going to be based on, well, how far off that norm is it mm, to them? Right. But everyone's norms are different. Yeah. And there's also uh, really the idea of normal sex is mm -hmm. actually pretty much a myth. Um, and so sex positivity, at least in the psychology field, which is really the way I can speak to mm -hmm. it, has been a growing movement to reclaim sexuality as not just some 
uh, aspect of ourselves that is there to be judged and evaluated mm -hmm. by its mm -hmm. distance from some kind of imagined right. norm. But instead, part of its beauty and power is in its creativity and diversity and, mm -hmm. and pleasure and that that needs to be really celebrated and that people yeah. need help finding sometimes, okay, what, what about sexuality? What kind of sexuality mm -hmm. feels good and healthy for them? Yeah. You know? And so when I work with um, say other therapists, if I'm mm -hmm. doing a training or something, we really try to help them explore without judging, okay, what are the yeah. cultural family, religious, mm -hmm. whatever influences are on what they view as healthy or not. Because yeah. we all have these biases. Oh, right. oh totally. Yeah. You know, and uh, and the point is not to somehow become some enlightened being who mm -hmm. is free of biases, right. uh, but it's to actually get to know our own biases, mm -hmm. interrogate them in a way that helps us kind of figure out where does this come from? Yeah. Do I actually want to hold on to this? Mm -hmm. Does this feel accurate to my beliefs? And then the more aware we are of it, the less we're going to actually act from our biases right. reflexively, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think a big piece of this is, yeah, is understanding where do you feel uncomfortable? And is that discomfort with this idea of your sexuality actually yours and something, you know, or is it something you inherited or that was passed down to you um, to really just kind of distinguish like, yeah, where, where is this block coming from? Like, why is it here? And yeah, does it serve me or not? Because, you know, there might be things where it's like, okay, well, I know this doesn't sit with me, but it's because I really wouldn't want to do this. Um, and how to even come to that place where you can have that awareness for yourself, but not yuck anybody else's yum. It's like, that's fine if I don't want to do this, but that doesn't mean other people are wrong for wanting to do this or bad for wanting right. to do this. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So when you encounter someone, cause I, I get to hear a lot in the Bible about you're still in Cali <laughs> where we met, but um, I'm here in Nashville. And one of the biggest things I see is this religious trauma of this, like, this is the way, you know, yeah. I was taught it was supposed to be. And so when that comes up, how do you start to reconcile this idea of, I am not who I was told I was supposed to be and how can I possibly be okay with myself if, you know, cause we're pack animals. We're, you know, if you feel that separation from your group, how do you find that kind of internal place to even start questioning in a safe way where you feel like, okay, I can look at this and, and not feel like, Oh, if I open that door, they're going to ex exile me. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know, I think the temptation sometimes, and this has happened to me in the past, is if someone comes to you and they have, say, more of like a religiously based belief mm -hmm. system around sexuality, more conservative, maybe they feel a lot of shame about it. Mm -hmm. And maybe you have, or in my case, you know, have very different beliefs right. and values. I think the, uh, the immediate temptation is to basically say to them, oh, you don't have to feel ashamed for that. Mm. This is great. Let me tell you why it's so great. And the problem is then people will generally feel like you don't understand, mm -hmm. you know, you don't get it. And it is amazing to me as a psychologist uh, that we as people um, will, without consciously intending to, we really yeah. protect our own pain. Mm. We, we, we protect our deep dark, shameful, vulnerable right. fears and feelings, mm -hmm. not because we like it, but because it's known, it mm. is, it's safe, it's the devil we know. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to let go of that and embrace the fear of change, the fear yeah. of something new, even if it's potentially better, until we really feel understood and feel safe to do that. Mm -hmm. So when I work with someone who is wanting to explore their sexuality or their beliefs or relationship style, whatever. And they're struggling with that kind of internalized shame, yeah. wherever it's from my, in the way I work, my first step would be to really understand their shame. Like I, I don't want to just overwrite it with my beliefs yeah. or opinions. I want to, I want to really know in as specific nuance right. as possible 
Um, what did they learn? How did they internalize that knowledge? Mm -hmm. How is that reinforced by family, friends, partners? Right. What about their own fears and insecurities mm -hmm. does that hook into? Yeah. You know, and what I believe is that people, by and large, people make sense. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, our beliefs, feelings, actions, they have reasons. Right. Yeah. They may not be logical or rational mm -hmm. in the way that we like to think of logic. Mm -hmm. And having reasons doesn't excuse us from being right. accountable for what we do, mm -hmm. but people make sense. And if someone mm -hmm. doesn't make sense, if their belief doesn't make sense, then you don't know the whole story. You don't mm. understand the whole thing. Right. So when someone comes to me and they share a belief uh, that may not make sense in my framework, mm -hmm. I really need to understand their framework. Right. Because unless they feel really safe and understood, their emotions, their mind isn't going to yeah. be able to relax and feel safe enough to consider something different. Oh my God, that's so good. Um, because I feel like vulnerability is just such a vital part of connecting to your sexuality. And if you're struggling with that, the ability to even get vulnerable enough to talk about it really comes, like you're saying, from this sense of understanding. Um and I think that's where so many of us struggle, even in just our everyday relationships, let alone like the whole, like, who am I? And you know, what am I all about? Bigger questions is this, you know, if it doesn't make sense to me, it's almost like cannot compute, must reject and <laughs> instead exactly. of being like, oh, wow. Okay. This doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to choose not to feel threatened by that. And instead, like you're saying, try to like, what is this other point of view? Um, I've been playing around with this whole blog that I'm writing about this idea of like misunderstanding is like, you're literally like standing in someplace else. So you just cannot have the same point of view because from that angle, it looks differently. Um, right. But that doesn't mean that you have a better point of view or your, you know, partner is standing in the wrong place, but it, you know, it's just like, how can we, yeah, seek to understand. And I love, you know, you mentioned earlier about this idea of the creativity. And I think that ties into it. How can we kind of get curious and be creative of how can we see it, you know, uh, from some, something other than our own lens. Exactly. And this kind of tendency, uh, to feel threatened, that was a great word. I think you used to feel threatened by someone else's different belief or opinion mm -hmm. or whatever. It starts so young often, mm. you know, even when we're kids, sometimes if, you know, we're four, and we do or say something that is very different to say what our parent might believe or think, uh, they might often tell the child, no, no, mm. don't do that. Don't say that. Do this instead. And maybe sometimes that's appropriate. Don't throw mm -hmm. your food at strangers. Okay, okay. fine. Um, maybe it's something that might feel appropriate to that parent in their belief system, mm -hmm. like don't talk about your penis. Mm. but then that four-year-old learns something. Right. And so I think just generally speaking, we as people have a really hard time sometimes tolerating difference in others. We want them to either be mm. the same as us, or we have to in some way um, reinforce that they are and like devalue them in some way, Yeah. you know? And I think around yeah. sexuality and relationships, this comes mm -hmm. out so much. Oh yeah. And, in, in and in I mean, I think we're seeing it more and more, you know, the toxicity that occurs when we attempt to devalue somebody on, on any level, but especially um, sexuality, because I mean, we're literally here as a result of sex. So if you start stripping away the importance of sexuality in our lives, you're kind of saying like your existence is somehow flawed. Like you wouldn't be here without sex, you know? Um, so where, what does that mean then if, if, you know, my sex is somehow separate from me because it, it can't be acknowledged for what it, it truly is because it's different than what someone else thinks it's supposed to look like. Um, so when we talk about sexual and relationship diversity, where do you see, uh, you know, beyond like the LBGTQIA plus world, how do you see the scope of sexual and relationship diversity for those who are listening and thinking like, am I, you know, am I 
normal enough or am I, you know, too far on the spectrum? Like you're saying, there's this like imaginary benchmark. Um, what are some of the things that you come across that people are like, oh, I'm not sure, you know, if, if this is okay for me to be interested in this, the, the taboos? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, as some of these taboo things like mm-hmm. kink or polyamory or whatever have been becoming more prevalent and talked about uh, in Western culture in mm-hmm. the last few decades, um, you know, people might feel like, oh, this is some new phenomenon. Mm. But I guarantee you throughout history right. and across cultures, none of this is new. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's, you know, got it's changed over, over time. Mm-hmm. But these are base kind of human um, interests and, yeah. and tendencies. And so when it comes to sexuality, the way we think about diversity has really expanded in the last mm. 50 years. I mean, if you go back to uh, the 50s, sexuality was you were heterosexual that Mm. was sexuality and if you were anything but that it was considered an illness and and terrible Mm. and so okay we go forward a few decades oh now sexual orientation is an aspect of Mm. diversity oh okay well go forward a few more decades oh gender identity is now an aspect Mm. of diversity it's not that this is a new phenomenon right It's that culturally we're starting to realize, oh, this isn't just one way that you can be. And then, you know, Fifty Shades came out and now everybody realizes, oh, I guess we're all kinky actually, which statistically, yeah, it's actually more than half. Um, But, and now we're seeing that with relationship diversity when it comes to monogamy, because Mm -hmm. um, Western culture especially in America, you know, very, what we would say, mononormative. Yeah. Just like we are heteronormative, we are built around the assumption, the presumption of heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Our culture is completely oriented around a total assumption that relationships are going to be monogamous, Mm -hmm. the way that marriage is structured legally and spiritually, religiously. Um, And what we're seeing now is that people are starting to really realize, again, not a new thing, but they're mm-hmm. starting to be more accepting of and have language for, yeah. oh, there's actually other ways to be. Right. And that monogamy is not necessarily a baked in human um, absolute. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, in the, in the psychology world, whether it's as a researcher or as a therapist, 20 years ago, there was this pervasive stigma uh, against consensual non-monogamy mm. among therapists, researchers. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of therapists and researchers that still do stigmatize right. it or are ignorant about it. But now research has found all these great things about how non-monogamous relationships are just as healthy and satisfying mm-hmm. for those people as monogamous ones. It's not better or worse. It's right. just different. Yeah. And a lot more therapists are starting to come Mm -hmm. around to this idea. Uh, The one thing I want to add on, though, is that what I see a lot kind of online and talking to people is that because we we think about sexual orientation uh, as a kind of stable trait over Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you're gay at 10 or 20 or 30, you're going to be gay at 80. And I know that that is true for say the majority of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more flexibility, of course, mm-hmm. when you get to more of the middle of the Kinsey scale, right? In terms of people's uh, change or flexibility. But when people think about say monogamy, polyamory, mm-hmm. swinging, whatever, they're often still thinking about it like, oh, am I monogamous or am I polyamorous? Mm-hmm. As, yeah. if, as if it's some you know, deep That's trait. And I think that that is not, I think it's a bit of a a simplification, Mm -hmm. you know, that we have to kind of separate out. Oh, okay. Well, maybe some people might be more likely to trend towards monogamy versus non-monogamy either at some point in their life or over a long time in their life. Mm -hmm. But that's probably because of differences in things like personality factors Mm -hmm sexuality factors, yeah. cultural beliefs, um, influences. Mm-hmm. I think that 
how we structure our relationships with regards to monogamy or not is actually very contextual. Mm. It's often a lot about who we are at a certain time in our life, yeah. what we're wanting or not wanting, who is around us, mm-hmm. what are our influences. And that can change over time and that's okay. Absolutely. Because you can have a monogamous marriage if you're married, you know, to, and you get divorced. So when it, that first marriage could be monogamous, the second marriage could be monogamous, but it, it could be an entirely different relationship as far as so many other dynamics and the way you relate to each other. So yeah, right. I think there's like so many subtleties and and once we stop seeing things as this like very finite place and realize, like you were saying, it's a flexible kind of fluid spectrum. Um, yeah. So what do you think would be the shift we need to kind of see in society um, uh, that changes the default, right? Like you were saying, you know, we have this, the default is your heterosexual. Um, the default is your monogamous. Do you ever see that changing? And, and what would the cultural shift need to take on for that? That's a big question. Boy, if I ran the world, <laughs> uh, I think that change to a certain extent is happening and is kind of inevitable yeah. because we see that to a certain extent with, say, sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. There is still, I think, generally a presumption that you have a kid, that kid's going to be heterosexual. But at least out here in liberal California, right. uh, you know, there's a, a growing understanding that that might be statistically more common. Mm-hmm. but that it doesn't make it um, better or more normal right. or, or whatever. And so I think we're seeing that happening already. Mm-hmm. And you see it when, like I've looked at polls of, you know, different generations and how they view social issues. And, you know, generally speaking, if, if we as, uh, well, speaking for myself, I'm like a, a very old millennial. Um, <laughs> I'm like, one year away from the millennial cutoff, I think. Uh, if I think my generation is mm-hmm. more uh, progressive in how they think about sexuality or gender or relationships, right. the the kids that are in high school now blow yeah. us away. Yeah, And I think it's great because mm-hmm. now you're starting to see, I mean, when I was in high school, it, being gay or someone's thinking you were gay was still a terrible thing. Mm. socially you know mm. now I know that happens still a lot in a lot of mm-hmm. schools and communities but I mean overall countrywide I think that's changing uh there's a lot more cultural acceptance around and I think growing understanding around gender identity as yeah. being you know different from sex at birth mm-hmm. and different for different people and that that's okay and yeah. and I and the polls also have showed that the same trend is happening with acceptance of non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think that given the, you know, millennial no, uh, centuries, that's the word, mm-hmm. of monogamism in our culture, mm-hmm. I'm not thinking that in 50 years we're all going to be polyamorous, <laughs> right? Uh, and the jury is still out in terms of the research on, okay, if we took away culturally imposed, you know, monogamism, mononormativity, mm-hmm. how many people would kind of naturally gravitate yeah. towards different kinds of non-monogamy or monogamy? Mm-hmm. And we don't have answers for that yet. And I think it'd be hard to have an exact answer. Yeah. But I do think that in my opinion, in the in the coming decades, we're going to see various forms of non-monogamy become increasingly normalized and accepted as maybe a statistically less common thing than monogamy, but as less of some kind of moral judgment, you know, just the same way we have with sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm curious because you mentioned in the beginning, kind of, there is this like oversaturated sexuality in the media, but it's portrayed in this very specific way that is, so much more performance, I think, orientated uh, the way it's supposed to look mm-hmm. as opposed to the real life. But at the same time, I think about, you know, is poly or open relationships more of a conversation because of uh, shows like, um, I can't 
think of the name of it now, but it was like, you know, these people in San Diego who uh, like married and plus one or something, you know, like there's more and more oh, yeah. of these. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah, Kamala Devi. And, and there we go. Thank blood. you. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and I think back to like, uh, you know, when was the first time I saw somebody who uh, was openly hetero, uh, openly homosexual in like the media? Or when did I first see somebody right. who was openly trans? Um, and how it's like, does that allow these kind of opening up? And it's a tricky thing, right? Because you have the media showing it, but it's not showing an accurate portrayal. How do you see that kind of unfolding in what we know about each other and how much more we start to open up and, and accept these uh, alternative lifestyles? Well, I think that, you know, the media well, first, I guess as background for this, uh, I'm going to have to betray a little bit of my my inner Freudian because I, I tend to think more psychoanalytically. Mm -hmm. And Freud, you know, we've moved on a lot since him in the last hundred years, but he got a lot of things pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. And what I'm one of the things is that when something, especially something that has to do with sexuality, uh, feels or or you believe is forbidden. Well, that becomes the thing you want right. or it becomes it has a hold over you. Mm -hmm. And so our culture, again, very sex negative or autophobic in actual practice. And yet we saturate ourselves with very sexualized media mm -hmm. compared to even other Western cultures right. because it represents we want to be titillated, mm -hmm. but then kind of denied mm -hmm. and feel bad about it, you know? Right. And you see that in how these things get represented. Uh, the first, the first kiss on on film was scandalous in the fifties. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, Star Trek, the first interracial kiss, mm -hmm. scandalous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the first times I remember seeing BDSM kink portrayed. Uh, I don't remember when it was exactly, but it was all. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking of that terrible Nicolas Cage movie, Eight Millimeter where he investigates oh. some like snuff film and it, it yeah. portrays all this stuff as this just dark, dangerous, terrible right. criminal thing, which is hilarious. Cause if you actually go to kink clubs, you know, we're, we're mostly just all nerds, nerds but totally. Nerds. Um, and you see that I think with polyamory or non-monogamy, you know, there's movies where like, Oh, a menage a trois, that's mm. very scandalous mm -hmm. and sensationalist. And then you start seeing, shows or movies where oh this person is polyamorous or bisexual and it's treated as like this uh this character defining quirk mm -hmm. and yeah. and then soon and i think we're starting to see this you're going to start seeing these aspects of sexuality or relationships become just part of their character part of mm -hmm. you know normal right um you know, it's it's nice. Like there's shows now where, uh, like I'm thinking about uh, the the Expanse, which is a great show, where it portrays characters who have different, you know, sexual orientations or fluidity, and mm -hmm. it does not treat it like a big deal. It's not right. actually part of who they are as a person, as a character. Yeah. It's just a thing about them. And when we start seeing that broadly in the media mm -hmm. about non-monogamy or kink that's going to be a good sign. Yeah. I look forward to that. I'm, I'm very excited to help perpetuate that in motion. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit, you know, about therapy. I'm a big advocate for therapy. I've been in therapy for like 30 years on and off um, <laughs> every EDMR and tapping and different modalities. And um, it truly has been so helpful to, I think, have somebody just really listen, you know, and listen to seek to understand you, which I think is a thing that we just don't get in most areas of our life. So right. what was that turning point um, for you when you're like, okay, this is where I'm headed. And this is why, this is why I think, you know, to not just be a therapist, but to be a therapist that uh, really focuses on this scope of otherwise kind of undiscussed uh, things about relationships and sexuality. Oh boy try to avoid going into my entire life history here. You know, psychology was always a main interest of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a bit of a second career for me, as as, as I think you know, because you, you were there. Mm -hmm. you, you knew me through all that. Yeah. Um, and 
and when I decided, uh, when I decided to go to grad school and change careers and go into psychology, the thing that really interested me about it was um, really getting to know and understand people. I've always found people so fascinating mm -hmm. and the mind very fascinating. And of course I wanted to help people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and also it was something that, what's something I like about psychology is that it's a, an incredibly creative, diverse field. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things you can do within the field. Right. And interestingly enough, going into grad school and whatnot, I really didn't plan to specialize in working with non-traditional sexualities or mm -hmm. relationships. Um, and very quickly, you know, I started doing research. I started going to professional conferences, talking to other therapists when I was a student. And I realized, oh, these people have no idea. Right. Like they're well-meaning, yeah. but they just have no clue. Yeah. And then I started realizing, oh, and all of my friends in, you know, the kink, poly, whatever, sex positive communities, mm -hmm. a lot of them have had either bad experiences in therapy of being mm -hmm. pathologized, stigmatized, or they're afraid to go to therapy or to go back because of that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, this is an opportunity for me to help bridge these worlds a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and so that's been... A big focus. And in my private practice, I do work with a lot of people, uh, kinky, poly, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. um, all across that those spectrums. But I actually work with not just those people, I work with all sorts of people, adults, relationships, yeah. but I like having in my own practice, a diversity. Yeah, you know, I think if I only saw poly or kinky people, it would just be my whole life, right? Yeah. Uh, clinical research, everything. So I like personally having a pretty broad range of people, mm -hmm. but then this is a specialty of mine. And so I, I try to really do more work on training therapists, mm -hmm. uh, research. Uh, I'm working on a book right now. That I'm co-authoring on, uh, yeah, it's a book for therapists on working with kinky people um, that I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a way for me to um, help inspire other clinicians to kind of uh, spread the gospel of sex positivity. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it is so important, like you said, um, to find someone who can affirm you, you know, and, and help you understand rather than, you know, stigmatize. Um, I remember having a therapist once that when I was like trying to explain to her that, you know, BDSM had become this way for me to kind of go through the pain and like heal abuse trauma. And like, she was just like, you're nuts. Like you could tell like the look on her face is yeah. just like, and I was like, oh my God, what if I am crazy? You know, what if there is something wrong with me? Um, so do you have any tips for people as far as like when they are looking and researching or questions, they should be asking it, to find somebody who can really speak to them in, in a way that's helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. So a few, a few things I want to share uh, about this. First, if if you are, say, kinky or poly or a swinger or open relationship, or, you know, if, if you are in one of these worlds and you want to find a therapist who has a lot of um, knowledge about these things, then you'd want to find, there's a, there's a few different directories online where you can search for therapists mm -hmm. that have these specialties. Uh, if you just search, uh, there's the kink aware professionals directory. There's also the poly aware professionals directory. Okay. There's the open list that Tristan Tarmino, I believe, administrates. Um, oh gosh, I think there might be a few others that I'm forgetting just now. Mm -hmm. And also on Psychology Today, Psychology Today is a big therapist online directory. Mm -hmm. They now have a feature. Um, that some colleagues of mine got them to add that there's like check boxes you can you can check to you know sort your search results by people that um, have expertise in or affirming of mm -hmm. sexual diversity kink non-monogamy so there are ways to find poly affirming or kink affirming clinicians Wonderful. now my caveat because 
what I hear a lot is that, okay, people are hearing, yes, there's kink poly, or, you know, kink positive, poly positive therapists out there. And so the challenge is that being a poly affirming, kink affirming therapist Mm -hmm. does not necessarily mean that they are the right therapist for you. Mm. Uh, It also doesn't mean that necessarily the greatest therapist. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that it depends on what specific things you're really looking for. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to therapy for something that is not super specifically or related to these aspects of you, Mm -hmm. um, then going to a therapist that's going to be non-judgmental and affirming of these things, but maybe doesn't have like a lot of specific knowledge about mm-hmm. these worlds, that's okay. A good yeah. therapist will want to understand and not mm-hmm. judge. Um, if you have challenges that are specifically kink or around kink or polyamory or whatever, mm-hmm. then yeah, you might want to work with someone that has more specialized knowledge about those worlds. Mm-hmm. But I would say as important as it is to find a sex positive therapist, you, you definitely want to find the best therapist for you. And that mm. can be one of the aspects to it. Right. I love that. Thank you. And if you're interested um, in contacting Ryan Witherspoon, here's all the information to get a hold of him. There is ryanwitherspoon.com. That's R-Y-A-N-W-I-T-H-E-R-S-P-O-O-N.com. You can also find him on Twitter. That's R-G Witherspoon on Twitter and Ryan G. Witherspoon on Facebook. So let's jump into, um, you're in a relationship, right? I I loved on your site, you talk about like personality patterns and and long-term relationship personality patterns. And um, this is something my husband and I have been talking about a lot, you know, just like, oh, we're doing that thing, you know, and to be able to catch yourself in the moment and be like, "I'm, I'm on autopilot. Like, I don't even, you know, why? And it's not working, you know, in the the moment when you realize like, oh crap, I'm doing that thing that isn't working. So what is your advice or or take on one, how to identify that without judging yourself and two, how to start shifting these, these things that we do in relationships that kind of uh, poke unnecessarily. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, that's such a important and broad question because it really is going to depend a little bit, but you know, you're right. We all have these patterns. I don't care how much therapy you've had. I've had a lot too. <laughs> we all have these patterns and um, that's just us being human, mm-hmm. right? We, we grow up and our formative relationships, our caregiver relationships, developmental experiences, our early romantic experiences, other, you know, outside factors, all of those things create and shape in us these kind of unconscious templates Mm. of how we relate to others, how we view others, how we believe others view us or relate to us or should. And then we go through life carrying these templates with us and these templates color the lens through which we perceive what everyone Mm -hmm. does or says to us and because everybody has their own lens it's all different Mm -hmm. often when I work with say couples they are fighting over say who is right or who is wrong about Mm -hmm. a fight I said this you never said that you know (laughs) And I, I sometimes have to tell them, look, guys, I, I do not care. Right. I do not care what actually was, if there was a camera right. and a recording, I wouldn't watch it because what's important is what did each of you experience? Mm. Where are the discrepancies? How does that relate to anything each of you might know about your own selves or your own mm. history? And how can you both not battle over who's right or wrong, but try to understand each other's mm-hmm. perspectives, even if you disagree. Right. You don't have to agree to understand. And so when it comes to relationships, we all have these templates and most of us are acting these templates out without any awareness of what's happening. Yeah. And one of the things about therapy that's so great is that a good therapist is trained 
to be sensitive to and listening for what those templates are mm-hmm. and able to reflect back gently, hopefully, yeah. hey, you know, they're doing this thing. And I'm wondering if that might be related to something else that you've experienced. Mm-hmm. And as you start to become aware of these templates in you and what they look like and what shaped them, the more aware we are of something, the more agency we have to shift it or control it. Yeah. Well, control is a bad word to use because that makes us try to over control. But the more <laughs> aware we are of something, the more we right. can interact with it. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. I love and that. Couples are, in my opinion, we are drawn to people sometimes mm-hmm. that will kind of evoke our deepest wounds, mm. not because we want to get hurt or we're there's not blaming the victim. It's that we are drawn to people who will sometimes evoke our wounds because our unconscious, we are always searching for the repair, mm. for the healing we didn't get before to make it right wow. this time. And if couples or relationships, if you can become aware of what are the wounds each of you are bringing together in this relationship mm-hmm. to try to heal together, yeah. that that lets you develop a lot more empathy for that. Oh, so good. <laughs> because I think, it, I, I mean, yeah, just so much truth. I, I see it a lot in my work. I've seen it in my own life that, yeah, it's like, you know, even recently uh, <laughs> I did a TED talk and None of my family watched, well, well, I said like one person in my family watched it, but I was like asking my, I was like, can you do me a favor? Can you like validate me and be like, you did a good job and I'm proud of you. And I'm like, because I didn't get that. I'm like seeking that. Now, thankfully I have the, you know, awareness to not like run around my house screaming and being like, you don't love me. And you know, whatever, like projecting stuff I can like say, Hey, I have a request. And if you can't do that, I'm willing to accept your no and like, you know, self-soothe or whatever. But, um, but we really do. We're, we're constantly like, there's this wound. (laughs) And I want you to like, you know, will you be the one now to like fill in the blank of whatever it is my, my, you know, daddy or whoever (laughs) didn't do. Um, so yeah, I think it's so good if we can recognize that and and say like, okay, this is the part where, you know, I, I want to work on this and, and thank you for showing me this space where there's uh, some, some growth to be had. Exactly. And I'm, I'm so glad that you had the awareness to, to ask for that validation. And also, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but speaking for me, um, mm-hmm. had a bunch of therapy. And yet sometimes I am that person, mm-hmm. you know, metaphorically running around the room screaming. Yeah. And we all are, you know, no matter how much therapy we've had or how insightful we are, we all sometimes act out, get messy, mm-hmm. don't understand what we're thinking or doing at the time. And so as much as relationships need that empathy of, okay, what wounds are we trying to heal Mm -hmm. for each other? We also, I think, need a certain level of uh, patience, acceptance Mm. to know what our boundaries are. Okay, what will I put up with? What won't I? Mm -hmm. And also within that space, can we uh, allow each other some grace to be messy sometimes? Yeah. Because I think, especially in the poly community, there's there's sometimes a bit of a, a of a pressure to be so enlightened, mm. so <laughs> so in touch with your jealousy or insecurities that any perturbations of totally nonviolent communication, right. like if you if you just don't put it perfectly, mm-hmm. you get shut down or blamed, and the more upset we are. Like neurobiologically, the more our higher brain functions shut off, Mm -hmm. the less access we have to our good coping, rational communication Mm -hmm. skills, and the messier we get. Mm -hmm. And yes, we can improve over time, but no one's going to be perfect. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, we're, we're all humans navigating this, you know nervous system and emotional experiences. Yeah. There's, there's going to be moments where, you know, it doesn't. And, and I can totally attest to that. Uh, you know, one of the first things my husband and I did, uh, was think we could go on vacation with his ex-wife. And that was like, cause I was like, I'm so good at poly. I can totally do this. And it was like, no, worst idea ever, <laughs> but we live and we learn, you know? And, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, being willing to say like, yeah, I, I didn't quite need to put myself, you know, in that situation just to, to prove that I had emotional intelligence. Like sometimes it's just right. Unnecessary. 
And can we tolerate our yeah. mistakes or our faults without, uh, and, and bear the feelings without mm-hmm. piling shame on ourselves, mm-hmm. without reinforcing terrible messages to ourselves about our worthiness? Can we just say, wow, I really messed that up and I am sorry, here's what I can do to make it better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, again, we often grow up in a culture of so much shame yeah. that it can be really hard to tolerate not just anybody else's faults, but our own, especially. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I know. I definitely think that we are our own biggest judge. And so naturally, if you judge yourself that much, you assume everybody else is doing that same thing and you project it out. So shame is, I think shame is one of our biggest hurdles. And I feel like this is the generation, like you were talking about, you know, like high schoolers, you know, I see so much growth. Like I was talking uh, to my cousins recently who have kids and, you know, I'm doing all this work to like unveil deep family secrets that have gone on for generations and the backlash from the elders, cause they are so fraught with shame. And I'm like, do right. you guys not see that this is what perpetuates these unhealthy patterns is not talking about it. And so to see these next generations that are, they're like, no, what we raised our kids to like, be like, you say it, like whatever's going on, you know, be, be willing to be unliked and unfiltered if for the sake of transparency and, and this, you know, like radical honesty. So, yeah, so I definitely have hope for shame eradication. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Shame festers in secrecy and in Mm -hmm. isolation and it isolates us emotionally, if nothing else, sometimes physically too. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about, is there a way to kind of like evolve your empathy? I think that's another one of the words, you know, we hear thrown around a lot and it's like, you know, if, if you feel like you struggle to understand people or, The other pattern I see is people who are so empathetic, it it borders on this like codependent attachment thing that can become toxic. So what are your thoughts on finding this like healthy relationship with empathy? Well, to answer, to kind of go into that question, I'm going to uh, gently point out that we need to start with how we think about it and our words. Mm -hmm we don't evolve our empathy. Mm. We don't get healthier. Okay. We might get maybe, uh, we might change our attitudes and actions in a way that is more conducive to close relationships that might bring better uh, experiences into our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's not just a semantics thing. I mean, I guess it Mm -hmm. is, but it's that, this is how embedded it is it, it is in us, is that, oh, if we're not sufficiently empathic, we're unhealthy. Mm. It's like, no, you're not very empathic. Mm. Now, sometimes in some contexts, that can be very adaptive. Yeah. If you are a soldier on the battlefield, you don't want to be too empathic right. in that moment. If you are a child in an abusive home, you can't afford to be empathic. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. But we can't, well, I shouldn't say can't, we don't want to label ourselves healthy, Mm -hmm. unhealthy. Um, We can think about, okay, how are my beliefs, feelings, and actions, uh, what are they doing in my life? Mm. You know, is it having the effects I want to have on me, on others around me? Do I want to change that? Mm -hmm. And I guess you could say that could be thought of as evolution. But again, that, that word implies there's a, a progression better. from yeah. yeah not good mm-hmm. to better yeah so that's my that's my quibble but to get to the root of what you were saying mm-hmm. i think you hit the nail on the head actually about how some people you know might be struggling with having as much empathy or expressing it or understanding mm-hmm. it and then some people on the other end of the spectrum might uh be so empathic and very sensitive to that that it's overwhelming yeah. And I think you mentioned kind of an attachment codependency thing. You know, I, I think that those tendencies, either ends of those spectrums, mm-hmm. really, whatever, wherever you're at on that spectrum, in my opinion, really gets forged primarily in our families, how we grow mm-hmm. up. And it gets forged yeah. with the emotional boundaries mm-hmm. that we implicitly learn. You know, where do me, the kid, where do I yeah. end and my parent begins? 
if my mom is upset, do mm-hmm. I have to also be upset? Mm-hmm. Or do we learn, oh, if I get upset, my mom gets really upset mm-hmm. and then it's overwhelming for me. So I have mm-hmm. to not be upset. Wow. Or do we learn, oh, they can have their feelings. I can have my feelings. Mm-hmm. There are boundaries to what's acceptable and how we act out those feelings, right. but we are separate people and that's okay. Yeah. A lot of us don't learn that <laughs> in that kind of middle range. A lot of us end up finding Mm -hmm. ways to create a sense of safety for ourselves by one extreme or the other. And then we grow up and we think that's, you know, unhealthy (laughs) in us. It was just a coping strategy. And every coping strategy, eventually we outgrow it and it starts Mm -hmm. to limit us. And therapy really helps us figure out what what strategies are there that Mm. used to serve a functional purpose and now maybe don't. So what can we change? Yes. Oh my God. So good. Well, we have three minutes left. So um, just brilliant conversation. And thank you so much for being on the show. Once again, you can find Dr. Ryan Witherspoon at ryanwitherspoon.com. That's R-Y-A-N-W-I-T-H-E-R-S-P-O-N.com. R.G. Witherspoon on Twitter and Ryan G. Witherspoon on Facebook. Dr. Ryan Witherspoon, thank you so much for being here. This has been incredibly insightful. Um, and I believe, you know, I, I love the work that you're doing. And um, any closing thoughts? We've got a couple minutes left. I just want to thank you so much for having me on here. I've really enjoyed it. It's great to get to see you again after so long. And so thank you for the work that you're doing. And I think that, uh, you know, there is a growing cultural shift in thinking about therapy and mental health as not some indicator that there's something wrong with you, mm. but as actually just an available support and help that we all deserve. Yes. You don't have to be suffering to get something out of therapy. And if you are, it does help. None of us are living lives we evolved to live. We evolved to be hunter-gatherers and tribes mm-hmm. of 100 or 200 people. If that was how we were living, I don't think we'd need <laughs> therapy as much, but that's on our world. Right. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you being part of uh, part of the good fight too. Yes. Thank you so much. And, and it's so true. Yes. You know, absolutely. If you're out there listening, like don't feel that, you know, there needs to be something wrong to get help. There's always this support to just get more insightful and, and understand yourself better because the first relationship you have begins with you. So thank you again, Dr. Ryan Witherspoon, for being our guest. I am Christiane Bella. You've been listening to Intimacy Architecture Radio, helping you to build a life you love. Good night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and being part of Intimacy Architecture. Join Christiane Bella for the next show. We're live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now go enjoy the weekend. Oh, 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 oh